be reading from God's Word, uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to worship this morning, come together and be before you the day after we remember uh, the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ, God becoming a man for us. I pray that we would look towards the Word as it would be in flesh, we would uh, be humbled before the Word before us, and we would open our hearts to it, and that we would have minds that would uh, be renewed, not just um, on one Sunday, but uh, like every Sunday where we have a, a, a special joyous time remembering the incarnation of, of the Son for us in this season. Amen. You can see the bulletin that you led me astray. I did the, the bulletin a little over a week ago, kind of trying to get ahead a little bit, and in that time sort of came where I felt the Lord was leading us uh, this morning in the text, really two thoughts brought us to Psalm 23 this morning. And the first is just thinking of the presence of God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And really how astounding that promise, that truth is and should be to us. The the beauty, the, the astounding nature of God with us. The passage in Exodus that was listed in your bulletin was not read is, is that incident with Moses where, if you remember in, in Exodus 20, the law was given. And, and following that, over the next several chapters, is the Lord lays out sort of some more detailed um, descriptions of the law and how God's people are to relate to Him, how they are to worship Him. And then it gets into the tabernacle and how it is to be structured and the Holy of Holies and the priests and how God is to be approached. And in the end, we see in order for them to be God's people, they need God's presence. But how can they withstand, how can they stand before God's presence? Because they are sinful people. And God cannot allow that stand, that sin to stand in His presence. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and he experiences this glory of God, and, and God writes with His finger on the tablets of stone and comes down, and He's now going to lay out how God's people are to worship God. And as He comes down from the mountain, Exodus 32, we read about it in the Psalm, Psalm 106, that Jonathan read. The people have decided, no, they will approach God in their own way, and they've created this golden calf. And, and idolatry is taking place as they've decided, no, they will worship God in their own way. And and Moses, in his anger, smashes the tablets on the ground, and God is outraged, and Moses goes off by himself. And God makes this sort of offer, if you will, to Moses. And I think it's a, an offer that the church makes all the time to its people. 
God makes this offer to Moses. Listen, I will protect you. I'll bring you into the land. I'll send an angel before you into the land. I'll give you success and I'll give you safety, but I'm not going to go with you. My presence will not be with you. I think how many of us, how often would we have this idea that we think so little of the presence of God with us that the idea of a promise of safety, success, and happiness would outweigh a promise of God's presence with us. But Moses responds, that's no good at all. If you do not go with us, we are not your people. And this idea of God's presence with us, and I think we often think too little of God's presence with us because we think too little of God. That we've kind of created a neat little box that God fits into and within that box, then, there's a, a, the part of my life that, that he can claim. And even within that, then, it's just how does God relate to me? And we come up with a very sort of safe version of God that has little claim on our life that reflects us much more than we are meant to reflect God. And so then when we think of God with us, and we have such a small sort of view of God, it doesn't just burst forward in our hearts. God in Exodus 33, he said, if I go with you people, I will destroy you because, because of your sin. And Moses is still saying, well, it doesn't matter. We need you with us. And so how does God dwell with us? The presence we need without him destroying us for our sin, he does so through Jesus Christ. He does so through the babe in the manger. God with us. The presence of God with us. Psalm 23 then will speak of God's presence with us and will describe the way God relates to us, I think, in three ways. The other reason why we landed on Psalm 23 is rehearsing over the last week, reading it in the nine lessons and carol service, hearing most of it read, reading it with our family through this week, the, the Christmas story in week one and two. All of God's Word is inerrant and important and active in our hearts and souls, but there does seem to be certain passages that even just the hearing of it, the reading of it, captures your mind and your heart and your soul in a specific way. But just hearing it read, when you read Luke 1 and 2, the familiarity of it, the beauty, the simplicity, and yet at the same time, this overwhelming truth of God becoming, entering time and space as a babe in a manger, and, and, and how that would be our only hope. There's something about that passage. Psalm 23, I think, is the same way. Just the reading of it is a bomb to the soul. Even if you're not familiar with much of Scripture, you're probably familiar with Psalm 23. I've read it more than one time in a hospital as someone's getting ready to go into surgery, or after a tragedy at someone's house, or at a graveside, or wherever it might be, and there's something about just the reading and hearing of this that speaks comfort to our hearts, because at the heart of Psalm 23 is the truth, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So Psalm 23, we'll walk through it this morning. And it talks about three ways that God relates to us, or God is with us. The first one 
is the most obvious. And there is this, that the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, first of all, it makes sense. If He is our shepherd, then we are the sheep. Lowly, totally dependent, kind of dumb sheep. The first thing we see right off the bat, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The shepherd provides for his sheep. When it says, I, I shall not want, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that anything you desire, you will have. It doesn't mean that what you think is best for your life, that you will have. Those things that you feel are an obstacle to your happiness, those will be removed. That's not the promise there. The promise, I, I shall not want, Psalm 34, verses 9 and 10, uses the same phrase. It says, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That which is truly good for us, the good shepherd, the Lord will provide. The, the connection here in verse 1 of Psalm 23, if you were in Dan Church Sunday School class a month ago or whatever, he talked about the parallelism, the way Proverbs are laid out. Psalms is the same way. And so the connection is this. The Lord is, therefore I shall. What the Lord is, that grounds my experience. My experience is determined and grounded in the Lord is. So what is it? The Lord is shepherd. Therefore, I shall lack nothing. Our experience is grounded in who God is. And that will control, really, the rest of Psalm 23. So as the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, He provides for the sheep and He provides in abundant grace. Psalm verse 1 and 2, it says, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We have the right imagery of, of the shepherd imagery that the psalmist is painting here for us. When I was, well, let's see, second, third grade, our family lived in New Zealand. Um, my dad pastored over there, and so we were in that country for a while. And if you're familiar with Missionaries, as they're raising support to go somewhere, they put together their little slide presentation they do at churches. And one of the things I remember about, I mean, I was, this was a long time ago, is in that presentation, you just give like facts about the country. And one of them was that the sheep outnumber the people 100 to 1 in New Zealand. And even as a second, third grader, I can remember sort of those rolling green hills with long, lush grass. You're only like, you know, four or five miles from the ocean, so you've got kind of that ocean breeze coming through, and this sheep just spotting it everywhere, just beautiful. That's not the picture that, of the shepherd here in Psalm 23. In the, the land where they would have been shepherding, what would have come to the, the mind of the reader is a very desert, arid place. A, a rough place to shepherd. These Shepherds would have been very nomadic. They would have covered a lot of ground. And you find this little tuft of grass here. A little bit of warm water, a small pool of water here. And so you're, you're never really stopping. You're just sort of wandering about. That would have been the experience of the shepherds. They would have found a place where there's enough grass for everyone to just stop and eat and some water to drink. That would have been a big deal. 
So this is the imagery of the shepherd, but now the abundant grace, the way that the Lord is shepherding and providing for his people is, now you've found grass and everyone is eating their fill. The water is cool and refreshing. Everyone has drank their fill. You completely provided for it and now you're laying down in it and resting. There's this total reversal of the picture of abundant grace that God provides for us. My mind runs to a passage in Romans 8 that's familiar. Pastor Adam referred to it a few weeks ago. But we lack nothing. God provides for us an abundant grace because He's already given the first gift, the greatest gift. Romans 8, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for us all. The greatest gift is the babe in the manger. It is God with us. He gave us the Son. How will He not also freely with Him give us all things? That the abundant grace that we have is, is guaranteed to us because of the babe in the manger. He already gave the greatest gift. All beauty, all abundance, all kindness that we know is a gift from God. It's important we don't just walk through life without acknowledging the beauty, the abundance, the kindness that is ours through Christ. He provides abundant grace. He provides restoration for the soul. Verse 3, He restores my soul. That idea of turning hopelessness into hope is that restoration. You've had those moments, haven't you? Whatever the phrases are, you know, the wind knocked out of your sails, the legs knocked out from underneath you. You just kind of something happens that's devastating. The pit in the stomach, the relationship gone sour, the, the hardship that comes into life. And you just need a bomb. You need kindness. You need restoration. The shepherd does that for us. The shepherd also guides his sheep. Look at verse 3. He says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He guides his sheep. Literally, he leads us in the right path. It's going to go on. We'll see what those paths are. Some of those paths are the green pastures and still waters. Some of those paths lead us right through the valley of the shadow of death. You literally could read it this way. He leads me in paths of righteousness, even the path through the valley of the shadow of death. The right path that God guides us on, that He cares for us on. So, why does God allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Why does God allow us to walk through the dark times? Again, I think the analogy of the shepherd in that time gives us the answer. It is to get to the green pasture and the cool water. As the shepherds in, in that area, they're very rocky, uh, difficult terrain. So as they're leading their sheep along, there would be times where they're going down the sides of hills, mountains, that is rocky, difficult terrain, into the valley. Not lush valleys, but dangerous valleys that they're looking to then get up the other side so they can get to the pasture. Footing would be uncertain. Prey would be hiding there, escaping the heat, a place to hide. 
so these valleys were ones of danger where, where the shepherd would have to be on guard for the sheep. But the point is, they walk through the valley of the shadow of death in order that they can get to the green pastures and the living waters. We all experience those paths at some point in our life. They are the right path for us that God is taking us on. But we all experience them. For some, it might be just a momentary cloudiness. For others, a lot of your life is lived in the valley of the shadow of death. It's just the reality of it. And yet, it's the right path because in it, God guides us. That imagery of his staff, his rod and staff, to comfort us. That staff is the imagery of his guidance to us. But look what else it says in there. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God with us. Just stopping and thinking on that truth. Meditating on that truth throughout the week. The announcement of God with us. You think of all the imagery of God in the Old Testament of the whirlwind and the fire, the terror, the awe-inspiring creator of the universe. And now He's with us. God with us. That should bring such joy and hope and fear and awe to our lives that when you are in the valley, you can say, God is with me. When you're in the mountain peak and experiencing the greatest of joys, it is God with us. When you're alone, and you're at home, and you're in your room, and you're making decisions, you can say, God is with us. When you feel totally confused, and you don't have a five-day plan, let alone a five-year plan, and you don't know what is before you, you can say, God with us. The wisest of scholars have plummeted this for centuries and have not come close to reaching the depths. The angels long to peer into this very thing. What does it mean? What is it like the experience of God with us? The angels long to look into that, to know what that means, and yet that's our experience. That's our promise because of Christ. And it's not just God with us, for a few moments in the manger, or God with us for, for 33 years until He was taken up to heaven. It is God with us now. The Spirit imparted to us. Life lived before the face of God. We're going to go to Revelation in the new year. I'll lead us to a little study on the, the seven letters to the churches. But in there, it begins with this, that Jesus Christ walks in the midst of His candlestick. The candlestick is the church. That is the hope. That, that is the source for, for all of the correction and all of the comfort offered is Christ is in the midst of His church. And again, the presence of God with us, it fades in our minds. It doesn't excite us nearly as it should. I speak from my own heart. And it's because our view of God is smaller than it should be. What we need in this coming year is more words about God, more thoughtfulness given to God. God with us. 
terror to the ears of darkness, to the ears of Satan. We looked at that in Sunday school last week, but God's coming to earth was a declaration of war against darkness. He came to destroy the works of the devil, the works of darkness. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Finally, we see that the shepherd protects his sheep. That idea there of the rod, that is the, the offensive weapon used to protect the sheep. The same word is used of David and others, where he uses in other psalms or back in, in Samuel, where David uses the rod to fend off, to kill the lion. This imagery of, of a shepherd, of the Lord is our shepherd, it's kind of got a dual imagery. One of that, that gentle shepherd carrying the sheep, caring for them. But also the shepherd, I mean, that day, was, he was a bad dude. The imagery of the shepherd is, is David in the psalm talking about when David wants to go fight Goliath. You know that story. He, he's marking out to fight this man. I was like, here kid. You can't go beat him. What does argument does David use? He's, I'm a shepherd. I've taken my rod. When, when the, the bear has come and the lion has come, I've grabbed the lion by the beard and I've killed him with my rod. I put the bear to death. I'm a shepherd. I can face this Philistine. The Lord as our shepherd has that imagery of our protector, our provider, our guide. The second image that we see in this passage, then, is the Lord is my hope. The Lord is my hope. Verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. The imagery is God as our hope right in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. In the midst of the difficulty, God is our hope. There's a couple way, uh, ways of thinking this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Reading Hebrew scholars, people know a lot more about Hebrew interpretation than I do. So there's, there's probably two ways to look at this. It can either mean, one, that the enemy has been defeated and now in his presence as your captive, he's, he's observing your celebratory feast. So you beat the enemy and now he's watching you enjoy the spoils of his defeat. Or it can mean this, that the enemy is all around, but he is still powerless to stop the feast that is taking place. I think both images are true of Christ. The way that, that it is explained to us that in Christ coming to earth, God with us, it was a declaration of war and of victory over darkness. The light has come, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And though there is a sense in which Satan has been defeated, victory has been won. He is bound. And yet, as we'll see in Peter, as we return there for just a couple weeks where we finish it up, is that he is a roaring lion walking about. Seeking to devour. So while the, the, he has been defeated, 
he is in one sense bound, at the same time he has not finally and fully been put away in this age. And yet, in the presence of darkness, in the presence of evil, we can enjoy the spoils of victory right now because God is our hope. And He fills our cup with oil and overflows. He is gracious and good to give us all that we need right now for our good and for His glory. Not because He's removed every trial, not because there's not some darkness around us, but it's because in the midst of it, He is our shepherd and He is our host and He provides abundantly for us. Finally, the last picture. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my host. The last is that He is our pursuer. Look at how verse 6 ends. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Literally shall chase me. Shall hunt me down. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. First, God relentlessly pursues our good. He relentlessly pursues our good. Goodness and mercy aren't ours because we earned it. Goodness and mercy aren't, aren't ours because we went looking for it. Goodness and mercy belong to us because God relentlessly pursues us with mercy, with goodness. Even when we quickly flip the script and take credit for everything that's taking place and we become selfish and, and we fail to love Him as we should, He relentlessly pursues us with mercy and with goodness and with kindness. Because He's given us a Son, because God is with us, because every good thing then is promised with the Son, and what's it continue there in Romans 8? Therefore, He takes all of those things and He works them for our good. And it might include, as Romans 8 does, famine, persecution, distress, disease, COVID. Whatever it might be, but God pursues us with goodness and kindness in the midst of it. He is our hope. He abundantly ministers to us. He, he overflows our cup with mercy and with grace. Not only does He relentlessly pursue our good, but He ceaselessly pursues His glory. Back at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. It is for His name's sake for His glory and for our good. We need to recognize that these two things are not at odds. God's glory and our good. He made us for this purpose, to glorify Him. Fulfilling that purpose to be who we were made to be. Too often, we're given this picture of Christianity that begins to seep into our own heart and our own mind that somehow... God's end for us is our glory. Our momentary happiness. Our success measured in earthly terms. And when that happens, our view of God begins to shrink and He becomes just kind of like a genie in the bottle who's supposed to make our life better. 
And when we need Him, we'll do Him a favor by calling on Him. And the rest of the time, He just, you know, sits around hoping that we'll call on Him. No, He relentlessly pursues us for our good and for His own glory. Again, back in Exodus, Moses needing some sort of assurance after God says, I'm going to give you, I'll give you success, but I won't go with you. And he said, no, you have to go with us. God relents in that picture as we, we, we try to understand God and his relation to man. And remember Moses asked after that, then let me see your glory. Give me some assurance. And the Lord passes before Moses. And most of most of the glory of God is hidden from Moses because it would be too much for him to take in. But it says that he gets to see his, his trailing his trailing stars, kind of the, the back end of the trailing glimpses of his glory. And it's overwhelming to Moses. To the point that he's shining so brightly, he's got to cover his face with a, a garment or blanket before he can go back to others because his face is shining so brightly because of that glimpse of the glory of God. Steadfast mercy, abounding in grace and steadfast love. That's the announcement of the glory of God for us. God relentlessly pursues our good, ceaselessly pursues His glory, and those work together for us. And thus, our view of God is so little that His glory isn't all consuming. And finally, God eternally upholds His promise. He doesn't just pursue His goodness, pursue us with goodness and mercy all the days of my life. He does. But it's not just limited to this life. It's not just limited to the moments we're in the valley. The promise is that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We'll experience and enjoy and know the presence of God fully and fully for all eternity.
because the right child need us to an eternal enjoyment of God through the drawing power of the Lord of God. Psalm 23. Maybe that's the first place you go when you think of, of Christmas. And we've looked at the other passages. But in a way, it paints for us a picture of God that we need to have. The psalmist says often in Psalms, and we see occasionally, unite my heart, O God. It's kind of a, a obvious, but what is he asking? Unite my heart, O God. And it's this idea that we know who God is. We have faith. We, we believe in Him. And yet, our feeling is not one always that God is near. It's not one always that God is working for my good. It's not always that I'm living for His glory. And so the psalmist can talk about the feeling like God has rejected them, feeling like they're alone, feeling like they're isolated, or, or that they are pursuing good on their own. And the psalmist says, Unite my heart. Take the truth of God. Take my to meld them together. Unite my heart that all that I believe God is, I get the sense of that, that He becomes that to me in my experience. As a shepherd, I hope my Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is living and that it is active. Lord, we thank You that you, indeed You are the Good Shepherd. You are the Bountiful Hope. Lord, you are the relentless cure of our heart and our soul. Yes, for our good, but ultimately for your glory. Lord, we thank you for not just the promise, but the fulfillment of the promise that God is with us. Lord, your tabernacle built, it was given in such a way that we could approach you. Lord, in a very veiled way. Lord, cherubim put at the Garden of Eden to make sure your people did not enter back into the Garden. Cherubim set around the Ark of the Covenant, Lord, to protect your presence. Cherubim was embroidered onto the veil, suffering the holy, holy, holy place as he dwelled in the presence. Because of the Son, because of His life, because of His death, that veil has been torn from the two. Access to the Father has been won. Through the angel of the Lord that announces Your presence, that God has tabernacled among His people. Lord, cherubim in Revelation around the throne to lead us in the forest worthy. Lord, help us to be captured by to, to go as deep as we can into the glory, the truth, 